Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to add my word of welcome to Erica's. My name is Tony Diekman. I'm the site pastor here at Trinity Green Trails, and it is a privilege to be with you today as we start a new series titled All In, uh, where we're looking at Romans 12:1 and what it means to be all in as the church and as a follower of Jesus. As we begin today, I'd ask if you would bow your heads, pray with me as uh, oh, we go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the word and the spirit that calls us here. We ask in the power of your spirit that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be truly pleasing in your sight. Father, our rock and our redeemer, teach us all in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I, I typed in, as I often do during a week, I type in questions and things that I ask and, and to see what the Google has to say on things. And so I typed in this week, like, so, what would you owe somebody if they actually literally saved your life? And I found a thread where people were asking that question, what do you owe someone who literally saves your life? And it was fascinating to read the different responses to that question. And one of the responses was, you know, someone who said, well, you know, in ancient times, if someone literally saved your life, you owed them your life. You would, you know, actually serve them and, and, and do for them whatever it is they ask, and, and you would even give your life for that person. And, and, or you would see yourself as owing them a lifelong debt. You would be in their service for the rest of their lives. But today, you know, times are different, and that really doesn't apply today. It's more of like a moral debt you owe someone. And it's like, okay, I don't know what that means, but okay. And the next person says, no, I don't, I don't think it's that way. I think you, you, I think you, I think you tell them thank you, and, and you should at least give them a card. And I was like, oh, a card. That's, that's nice, you know, someone literally saves your life, you give them a card. I would think maybe a dinner on top of a card might be good. And then the third one was fascinating to me because it was like, well, the difficulty in that question is that how can you be certain? How can you be for sure? How do you know that the person who, who did this absolutely saved you from certain death? That may not have been the case, right? And so if, if, if it's really hard to determine whether or not your life was truly saved, it has to be an impossibility to understand that, then to ask somebody to be indebted is really not fair. So, the, the, you know, it's like, okay. And so I ask you guys this morning, what if somebody literally saved your life? Somebody gave their life for you and actually saved your literal life. What, what do you feel like you would owe that person? Not, not, not just stop there. Let's go on. What if this person was responsible for bringing you into existence. And I'm not talking about your mama. I'm talking about somebody bigger than that, somebody who not only brought you into existence, but actually gave you life, literally made it possible for you to exist, created the world that we lived in, and, and make it possible for you not to fly off of this planet as we travel around the sun, and actually made it possible for you to breathe air and to walk and to have sustenance in the things that you have. What do you think you owe that person? And, and it doesn't stop there because what, what do you think you owe that person when, when they did all this for you that you turned your back on them? You decided they weren't really all that important, that maybe they really didn't really save your life, literally, right? That you had really gotten yourself to where you are and and, and you neglected them, and you didn't even send them a thank you card, right? What, what would you think what, that you would owe that person? And that person, with this power, decides, 
They're not going to destroy you. They're not going to punish you. They're actually going to punish their son in your place. In your place. And, and not only that, that when he sent his son, you decided it was better to kill his son than, than to be convicted by his son. And so you did that. And, 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 in not, and then and this person didn't destroy you or didn't punish you for that, but continues to actually pursue you to remind you how much he loves you and, and to, to say to you that you are precious in his sight. What, what do you think you would owe that person? Well, you might be surprised to hear that he would say to you this morning that you don't owe me anything. Yeah, that's right. Nowhere do we read God looking at us and saying, so now you owe me. Nowhere. That usually comes from us. See, what, what he's saying is who he is. In today's text, this word, therefore, in the text, is speaking to what I just told you about God. It's those first 11 chapters in Romans, this book that Paul has written to the Roman church, those first 11 chapters is about what God has done for you, for the human race. What he has done and why he's done it. He's done it because he loves us and he desires for us to spend eternity with him. And not only that, it tells us exactly how we've, re we've rejected him, but yet he sent his son and how he continues to pursue us, how he continues to support us, and, and how he continues to pursue us. That's the therefore Paul is talking about. The therefore in today's text is in light of everything that God has done. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, that word urge there doesn't mean I demand, I command, or you had better. It means I plead with you. I, I implore you. I beg you. And, and why, why do you think Paul, the Apostle Paul, would use that type of word? Well, if, if you're familiar with Paul, or even if you're not familiar with Paul, there's some things that we need to know about why that word is chosen. Paul who used to be called Saul, was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. That he actually observed the Torah like to the letter. And, and so much so that when Jesus came and professed to be the Messiah, he was on the side of those that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then after Jesus was killed and raised from the dead, they believed that his body was stolen. And so Paul set about really almost self prescribed duty to go and to persecute the people that said Jesus had risen from the dead. And he went with a commission from Jerusalem to go out and, and to bring back those followers of Jesus to Jerusalem to go on trial, to stone them, to, to jail them, and in some cases kill them. And Paul was all about that. Until one day we read in Acts chapter 9 that Paul is on his way to a city called Damascus where he was looking to imprison more followers of Jesus until that day on this road, the risen Jesus appears to him on the road. And we're told that he recognizes him. What do you think Paul expects at that point, based upon the way Paul lived his life? But what does Jesus do? He has mercy on him. He doesn't destroy him. He doesn't wipe him out. No, he has mercy upon him, 
And then he sets him up and says, now I want you, Paul, to go and share with the world what I have done for you. Not only what I have done for you, but what I have done for the whole human race. And so why does Paul exhort us? Because Paul knows what the therefore is there for. It's, it's there for us to see the true picture of God. And what Paul is saying here at the beginning of this text is, in light of everything I've told you in 1 through 11, therefore, I implore you, I plead with you, because I know firsthand the mercy of God, and that I, if anybody else, deserved to be wiped off the face of the earth, and he didn't do it to me. And all of us together deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth, but God, being God, has mercy on us. Which is why he continues next and says, it is through the mercies of God. It is because of the mercies of God that he did not wipe us off the planet. It was because, it was everything in this text points back to the therefore. Paul says, therefore, because of the mercies of God, through those mercies of God, we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. But it's more than that. You know, some translations say, you know, in light of his mercies, which is partly true, part of what he's saying there. But really, the word is bigger than that. It's not just through, it's not just because of, but it's also by those mercies. The word there literally means one thing is possible because of another. It's not only in light of that, it's not only because of what God has done, it's not only the motivation to offer your bodies, it's actually the power to offer your bodies, which is provided by God. Let me explain it this way. You guys are familiar with the current space race, right? You know, between Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk and, and, and Richard Branson, right? It's all about getting to space. And, and it's not just about getting to space, it's about getting to Mars, Right? And they're all in this race. And, and everybody's being, the people that are being lifted up in this are these three guys. And everybody's lauding their praises. But think about it. Why are they able to get to space? It's not because of their brains. You know, it's, it's because of their money. True. But it's, think back. It goes back to World War II, back to Nazi Germany, back to those scientists who developed the V2 rocket and the technology to actually lift things off the ground with that kind of thrust. And you think about the science programs and, and NASA and all the space programs that, it, that have gone before them. They wouldn't be able to go to Mars or to space if it weren't for everything that had happened before. Right? And what, what Paul is saying to us is it's not only is that the motivation, but that is the power, that is the thrust, the gospel, the life of Jesus, the spirit that he gives us, that's what enables us to actually live the life of a Christian. It's the spirit of God that is the thrust in our life that empowers us to actually do what Paul is saying we can do. If it were not for the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, you can try, but you would not be able. You would not be able to lay your life on the cross because you would still be enslaved to your sinful self, is what he's saying. So not only is it the motivation, not only is God, not only is it therefore the motivation, the therefore is the power of God to actually do what Paul is exhorting you to do. 
Do you follow with that? And then he goes on to say this. He said, so then, it's by and through the power of God, the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present, not to, to command, be commanded, but actually to voluntarily present your life. Right? Not because God has said, you owe me. No, I mean, we do so freely in the power and the mercies of God. But then he says, we're to offer them as a living sacrifice. This paradoxical statement, there's something that's living, that's something that's breathing, not something that's dead. But he says, a sacrifice, which the word there literally means to kill, to put to death. So actually a living killing is the way you would translate that. And so, so what is he talking about? What, what does he mean by that? Well, the word there, living, that means to kill, to part the sacrifice, which means to kill, to put to death. The, the root of that word means up in smoke. And so we get a picture. If, if you're, you're studying your scripture and you kind of see it in the scholars, that's what they do. They study, and so they give you hints and clues and trades. And, and if your Bible will have some really good cross-references, it may reference a text called Leviticus 1 in the Old Testament, where God is relaying to Moses the sacrificial system. And in that first chapter of Leviticus, there's instructions for the children of Israel to bring their best bull, their best goat, or, their, or a turtle dove to offer to God and to sacrifice. And what is the priest to do to these things? But to burn them up, to actually kill them, not just kill them, but wipe them out, to burn them up. And so Paul uses this image of living and sacrifice to give us a picture of what it means to present our lives to Jesus. It's not a one-time thing that we do. It's something as a living sacrifice. We continually, over and over again, day by day, offer our lives to him, to use. For him to burn up our life, our plans, our desires for his. To put our lives on his altar and say to God, say to Jesus, here are the keys to my life. Please lead me where you would have me go. And that's something that Paul is saying we should be doing every day, all the time, as a living sacrifice. Someone once said the problem with living sacrifices is they keep walking off the altar. Right? We're to offer our bodies over and over and over again. Because being human, as he knows, we tend to walk off the altar. So Paul's continually reminding us it's something that we do over and over again. Again, it's not God saying, because you owe me. It's in response to what he has done for us. And in those old Levitical texts, one of the things that happens and is said at the end of each of those sacrifices, and this, he says, is a, is a pleasing aroma unto the Lord, that sacrifice in Leviticus. And here Paul is borrowing some of that same language. Is saying this living sacrifice, when you present it to God, is holy and pleasing to God. And so what is he saying there? In, in, in the Old Testament, in, in those sacrifices, they were commanded to bring them of their free will. They were called to do that because they wanted to. And when they did that of their own free will, as Paul commands us to do, he says that is a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. It's not when you're guilted or shamed or feel compelled to do this, to sort of repay God for what God has done. 
that we come and we offer our lives, our, our time, our money. Our, he says, no, that's not the pleasing aroma. The pleasing aroma is when you do so willingly. When you, of your own free will, offer your lives to him in response to his love, empowered by his love. When we do that, we're told that's a pleasing sacrifice, holy and pleasing to our Lord. Because of the therefore. And then he concludes this text by saying this. He says, which is your reasonable service? Now I know to some of you that's probably a different translation. A lot of times you'll see in your text, like in my NIV, it says, so what does it say here? It says, so holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship or your true and perfect worship, it'll say in some of your texts. And really, that's part of it, but that's, again, not the full meaning. That word there is literally reasonable, is what it means. And the, and the word there in the original language is the word logical. That's actually the word that's being translated here, is the word logical. And what Paul is saying is that in light of the therefore, in light of the mercies of God, in light of everything that God has done for you, when you really consider that, the logical thing for you to do is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. When you really meditate and ruminate on the therefore, the logical next step is to offer your bodies. And so in a way, Paul is saying, if you're resisting that, if you're resisting the call to do the logical thing, then you really don't understand the therefore. You don't fully grasp what it is God has done or who he is and what he's done for you, and, and in some cases, what he hasn't done to you that you deserve, that we deserve, but the mercies that he's given. He says, in light of that, that's a logical thing. And if you don't see that, if you're resisting that, then you really don't understand the therefore. You follow me? And I know some of you are saying, and, and I, I think rightly so, and if we're all honest, we say this at some place, maybe not out loud to our friends or here in church, we would admit that, but in the, in the quiet, we would admit that maybe that's not so reasonable, especially when it comes to certain areas of my life that I'm supposed to give that over to him as well. Like, seriously? I mean, I've worked hard for that. And, and, and he's saying, yeah, seriously. And I love what Timothy Keller says. He said, you know, whatever you live for, you sacrifice for. So he's saying, don't kid yourself. You do this in other areas of your life. You do this in areas where you'll sacrifice your time, you'll sacrifice your paycheck, you'll sacrifice your relationships, you'll sacrifice your waistline, you'll sacrifice your health to get the things that you want. You'll freely give up the money you've earned, you'll freely give up the time with your family or time with others to do and get what it is you really desire, what's the desire of your heart. You will sacrifice years and months and thousands of dollars to get. So don't kid yourself, Timothy Keller says. And, and Paul is saying he understands that. God certainly understands that. That's why it's not about this guilt trip. It's about doing so freely and understanding that therefore. But he also stands, understands that man's proclivities, right, is to cast our eyes and, and, and to be, like, consumed or to be, I don't know, like, I don't want to say certain words, but actually to be, like, enticed 
into to, to having, sending our allegiance somewhere else. I mean, have you ever seen this, right? Paul says in the next text, he says, so there, do not be conformed to this world, the patterns of this world, but this age is what he means. And this age, whatever you're reading it, to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because, see, it's where you cast your eyes. It's where you cast your heart. It's where you give your heart that will consume you, will, will demand you. Right? Have you, you've seen this picture, right? Maybe you've seen this scene in a movie or you've seen it in art or maybe you've seen it in person where you've been in a, in a gallery and somebody's sitting there and they're just gazing at this picture and you come back an hour later and they're still there looking at this picture. And they're, they're there not just because they're tired, but they're there because they're gazing upon this picture. They've come to know who the artist is and they're, they're marveling at the creation of the painting or whatever the piece of art is, and, and they're learning and understanding things about the artist, and they're coming to really appreciate the artist through the work. And, and it's the same thing I think Paul is saying. Whatever it is you cast your gaze on, whatever it is you marvel at, was where you'll spend your time and, and where you'll really fall in love with. And, and that's why Jesus says, you know, wherever your, heart, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. Whatever it is you set your eyes on, Whatever it is you set your gaze on will command your heart, right? I mean, we spend hours upon hours in front of a screen and hours upon hours in, in the cathedrals of our favorite sports teams, and we spend hours and hours and hours and hours in front of a little three-by-five screen. And the thing about all these things is that they're not bad things. They're all good things. They're all things meant to enhance our lives, to make our lives better, but they're not ultimate things. And the thing about these things, when we sacrifice for the things that these things call us to sacrifice for, they'll continually demand, command your attention and your allegiance with the promise that when you do follow after them, then you will finally experience life as it's meant to be lived. But the false hope in that is that it never, ever comes true. They'll always demand more. The, the ways and the age of this world will always demand more. It will never transform your mind, but will always conform your mind. And it will always demand more of your time and your resources. God is the only one who says, you don't owe me anything. He's the only one that truly loves you more than you love yourself or more than the, the closest person loves you and, and truly understands you for who you really are. He understands the, the things about you that, are, that you would consider beautiful and you would, he understands and loves the thing about you that you would consider disgusting and the world would say is less than. God still looks at you and says, you are precious in my sight. I love you just the way you are. You don't owe me anything. He sent his son into the world, not because to pay a debt to us. He didn't do it because we were good people. No, he did it because of who he is. Because he loves you. And he so desperately wants you to know how much you are loved that he was willing to send his son into the world. And so he calls us and Paul urges and implores us to spend time in his word, to gaze upon the true 
nature and character of God. Not that we can't do these other things, but to do these other things in place of this thing, in place of this gathering, in place of gathering with other Christians, you're setting yourself up for failure, for heartache. There's enough heartache in the world the way it is. But he's saying, if you'll cast your gaze, your eyes upon me, spend time with me, I will truly transform your heart and transform your desires. It is God that will give you the power to live that life, to continually put your life on the altar for your sake. Not for his, but for yours. That's how much our God loves us. And how much he desires you to experience that love. And so that others could then experience that love and truth through you. And see a God that is different than the one typically talked about. And we then could talk about him differently because we've spent time understanding the therefore. So we could really truly appreciate therefore. That's what he desires so that we could learn what it is to be all in for Jesus. Not out of guilt or shame, but empowered by love and because of love. That's what he desires for us. That's what he desires for the world. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about, because Paul talks about from Romans 12 to Romans 16, it's all about how do you respond to the therefore. And I guarantee you that the next couple of weeks will challenge your understanding of the therefore. So I would encourage you to maybe go back this week and spend some time in those first 11 chapters of Romans, being reminded of the love of God. Spend some time in the Gospels to be reminded of the love of God and allow him to empower you to be all in. I pray you spend this week reflecting on the therefore, for Jesus' sake and for yours. Amen.